I got to tell you, I don't feel very good following Jim Cimbala even for like three minutes. If you have followed the story of, of Jim and Carol Cimbala at the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York, uh, you know that prayer for, that, for those two people and for that church has been the backbone of their success in ministry in Brooklyn. I got to go to the Brooklyn Tab uh, about uh, the middle of May last year, and uh, it is just inspiring to be in a church, not just because of the mass choir and because there are so many people there, but because I know in sitting in that audience and listening to the choir and hearing Jim Cimbala preach that um, God is at work in them because they pray. And I hope that you'll take seriously this opportunity on Wednesday to be able to come and talk about prayer. Last time I spoke here, I, I really encouraged you to be praying a lot in this time of transition for the church. Because if you're not, then why should God pay attention? You really need to be talking to the Lord as individual people, but also as uh, a church, as a church family. And even if you're visiting today and you're going to be somewhere else next week or whatever, still talking to the Lord wherever you are is just so incredibly important. I mentioned last time that in a survey that Barna did, um, which is the kind of the Christian Gallup poll guy, the survey that Barna did, he found that only 3% of pastors and churches in the United States make prayer a high priority. 3%. What does that say? All kinds of programs, all kinds of buildings, all kinds of other things. But who are they talking to? Only to each other, apparently. 3% talking to the Lord in any significant way. Be among the 3%. All right? And see what God does with Bethel Christian Church here in, in town. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, I know you listen to us all the time. You hear our thoughts even when we're not pointing them at you. You know what our priorities are. You know what our issues are. You know what our love for you is. And you know when we have a problem in connecting with you. You know all of this. And in your grace and in your love, you listen and you care. And when we listen, you speak. And I'm glad for that. I thank you for your your, wor your word, what we call the Bible, which has so much in it for us to gain from you. And then those times when you make it so clear in our own minds and hearts what it is that you want us to know, to think, and to do. So in this little bit of time, as I bring this little piece of your word to these people, I ask you to um, help me to be clear and that your word will come through most strongly and that people can, as a result, be just that much better in their, in their communication with you and in their love for you and in their relationships with you. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Stories. I like hearing stories, and I like telling stories, especially when they're true stories. I'm going to tell you a few but first, a question. Has your GPS unit or the map app on your phone ever led you wrong? Did you die? <laughs> Some people have or have come close to it. 
There's some funny GPS stories which have made the rounds. One of them is there's an older British guy who was driving through Austria with his wife on vacation, and um, they were driving down a back road at night, and his GPS unit told him to turn right. Well, it's dark. It's night. He didn't know there was no road there. Drove right through a churchyard and into the side of the church building. They were okay, but the cost to the church building was about $30,000. Then there was a woman in Massachusetts whose GPS unit said turn left, so she did, right into a cornfield. Very weirdly, she kept right on going through the cornfield and into a golf course where she drove right into a sand trap and got stuck. In Switzerland, there was a van driver who was directed by his GPS onto a road up the side of a mountain. Well, he got stuck because that road was actually a path for goats. Then in a suburb of Seattle, there were three women heading back to their hotel after some event, and it was at night, and they were directed onto a downhill road, which turned out to be a boat launch. They got really wet. They survived. Their Mercedes-Benz got really wet and did not survive. Three tourists from Japan were visiting Australia, and they wanted to go see the North Stradbroke Island. And the GPS laid out a route for them, which took them into deep mud because there was no bridge. And finally, one family decided to visit Washington, D.C. on vacation. They got there. They set a tourist destination in their GPS. It directed them left and right and here and there and around until they completed a big circle right back to where they had started. We can therefore assume that Congress controls the GPS in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but seriously, some people have experienced tragic or near-tragic GPS blunders. You might have read about eight years ago about a woman named Donna Cooper. She and her daughter and another woman decided to drive to Scotty's Castle, which is way up in Death Valley. They were intelligent people. They filled their car all the way up to the top with gas. They took enough water with them, and they enjoyed a good day driving to Scotty's Castle. But on the way back home, they noticed a sign that was pointing to the racetrack. Now, some of you have probably seen pictures of this. You may not know the name, but it's a place where rocks actually seem to go across the desert sand and leave trails without any apparent cause. So they thought, well, why not? Well, let's go take a look. So they headed that direction, but they got confused. Time was passing, and they decided, well, we'll forget it, and we'll go home. So they set their GPS for home. The only problem is the signal out there is not very good, and it was erratic and sporadic, and it misled them. And after about 100 miles of driving up and down various dusty roads trying to figure out where to go, they finally ran out of gas, totally lost. Cell phones had no signal, and soon it was night. There is a reason it's called Death Valley. Today, we're going to look at one little part of Psalm 23. So if you have your Bible and would like to go to Psalm 23, do that. The 23rd Psalm is a favorite of many people. It's really well known. It's very short, but it's packed with wonderfully positive inspiration. David, who was the author of Psalm 23, was an experienced shepherd before he became king of Israel. So he wrote Psalm 23 with all of his shepherding experience in mind. 
the first words in the psalm are, the Lord is the one who is shepherding me. David, who knew very well what shepherding meant, viewed himself as one of the good shepherd's sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. And you and I need to affirm that as well. But my favorite line in Psalm 23 comes from verse 4. You want to put that up? Even when I walk through a valley of deep darkness, I will not be afraid because you, speaking of God, you are with me. Now, I want to pick that apart because, partly because it fits your situation here at Bethel Church in transition. But more specifically, it just might apply to you personally because of a valley that you yourself are in. Are you in a valley of darkness of some kind yourself? Even when I walk through a valley of deep darkness, I will not be afraid because you are with me. Let's start with the words even when. Some other versions of the Bible say even though, but the meaning is the same. The meaning is it will happen. It is not even if you walk into a dark valley. There's no if about it. In any human being's life, there are valleys, and some of those are seriously dark. No one lives a completely charmed life. No matter how much you might want to pretend, your life is not charmed. No Christian lives a completely charmed life, although some people do try to fake it because sometimes we get taught that, that our Christian living should always be positive and upbeat and we need to hide our valleys. No, we need to be completely honest. We all experience valleys, Christian or not. Your valleys are going to be different from my valleys. But we all experience valleys of darkness now and then. Now, you folks here at Bethel are currently experiencing a valley of difficult decisions, looking for God's direction as to the future plans for the church. And you are in that dark valley together. But what about your personal valleys? Your personal valley might be a financial problem. It could be a dark emotional valley. Maybe you're very sad at some great loss. It could be that you're in depression. Some Christians get depressed. Maybe your valley is relational. There may be some problem in the marriage, something with your kids, maybe another family member. Maybe you have just a horrible boss. Perhaps your valley is due to a long-term illness or the death of someone that you love. Or maybe you've lost your job or your home or even both. Life has many valleys, and some are much darker than others. But they're common to all people, even Christians. Dark valleys will come, even when. And the next two words are, I walk. Even when I walk. Those two little words are full of meaning. First of all, it's personal. I do the walking in my personal valleys. I decide what I will do in that valley of darkness. I can choose to walk or stand still. I can take the next step or not. I decide to make progress or not. I resolve to keep going or not. The walking is up to me. In your valley, whatever it is, you decide to proceed or not. And second, it's walk, not run. 
It's true. In the Bible, we have other places where it says run the race to win or run toward the goal. Good. But you and I both know that sometimes in dark valleys, we get exhausted. It can be overwhelming. And our loving God knows that also. So in his love and grace, sometimes he expects us simply to take the next step. Slowly at times, carefully at times, methodically at times. And he knows that at times we stumble in the dark. He knows that. But if we are wise, we don't quit. We keep walking. So first, I do the walking. Second, it's walk, don't run. And third, to walk means making progress. It means going forward, not back. Progress, not regress. It's heading toward the other end of that dark valley, whatever it may be, toward the light, not giving up, and sitting down in the middle of the valley, just frustrated in the gloom. Even when I walk. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. So do you choose to keep walking through the troubles? The next word is through. Even when I walk through. You know, Psalm 23 is essentially a positive poem. Um, God is my shepherd. He provides all I need. There are green pastures, quiet waters, restoration of my soul, righteous pathways for the sake of the name of God, a table of food prepared right in, the, in front of my enemies, anointing, an overflowing cup, goodness, mercy, gracious love, and the ultimate promise of an eternal home with the Lord. All of that is in Psalm 23. It is so incredibly positive. So in verse 4, this word through is in that positive context because it tells us there is an end to that valley. You can't go through something without coming out the other side or the other end. It doesn't say even when I get stuck in the valley or when I walk into the valley, it says through. So this little word is actually a promise. I will make it through. You will make it through. We will make it through. Bethel as a church will make it through. Just as dark valleys are inevitable at times, they're not endless. They are not permanent. Even though at times we might feel that the valley that we're in will go on forever. Even though I walk through a valley of deep darkness. This is the phrase in this psalm we don't want. We would rather just kick this one out. We don't like it. We wish it wasn't there. But it is. And I need to correct a common misconception about this phrase. In the King James Version, the ESV, the Amplified Bible, and some others, it's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And that's okay because that is indeed one possible interpretation of the Hebrew phrase. But too many people will take that phrase and then narrowly define this valley down to just mean physical death. Other interpreters or translators also correctly point out that the phrase can mean any situation in life which is intensely painful, intensely difficult, where the darkness of the mind or the soul can cause great fear and great distress. And that's why the NIV, the New Living, the International Standard, which I'm using today, all translate this phrase without the word death. It just simply means a deep, dark valley of some kind. Now, there are 
different causes. There are several possible reasons for these dark valleys to come to us. For one thing, there are some dark valleys that were directed into by God himself. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But another common type of dark valley is caused by our own sin. My disobedience or my rebellion. A shepherd will tell you that sheep like to flock together, but only if there are four or five or more of them. Otherwise, they kind of stray around. And sometimes it seems like one sheep will have a mind of its own, wandering away from the flock and away from the shepherd. Well, that applies to us at times. King David, who wrote this psalm, sinned terribly when he stole Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, Uriah. And then he had that soldier killed. So David, adultery and murder, one right after the other. The story is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and he confronts him and he says, your infant son is going to die as a consequence for this. 2 Samuel 12, 16, 17, David begged God on behalf of the baby. He fasted, he went inside, he spent the night lying on the ground. His closest advisors at the palace got up, they stayed with him. They tried to help him get up from the ground, but he wouldn't get up and he would not eat. And then the baby died. This was a terrible dark night of the soul for David. It was a punishment brought from God because of his own terrible disobedience. Yet God did not leave David. He was with him all the way through it. And then David wrote Psalm 51. If you haven't read it lately, read it. Psalm 51 is a painfully honest confession and a desperate cry for forgiveness. And one line of that psalm is, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and let a willing attitude control me. Well, of course God answered that prayer. God didn't abandon David in his valley of darkness, but David did have to face the consequence of his sin, his disobedience, and he had to walk through that valley. A small church I know of was known as the most generous in its denomination's region in giving to world missions. The regional report every year listed that church at the top of the giving list. It was great. But one year, someone in the national office of that denomination noticed that the dollar amounts listed in the regional report for that church did not match the actual dollar amounts received from that church at the national office. Well, it was sad. An investigation revealed that the missions treasurer and his wife had been stealing funds from that mission account for several years. They were beyond retirement age. They said they had simply borrowed occasionally from the fund to pay a few of their bills, and they always intended to pay it back. But it got out of control. It got away from them. And their secret and sinful debt mounted until it was huge. What a dark valley that they had caused for themselves. Now, the husband was too old to work, so his wife had to go back to work. She had to get a job to earn enough to reimburse the missions fund over a period of time. Did God abandon them in that? Of course not. The church kindly forgave their sin 
But the black mark on that family's name and their reputation was very, very dark. He had to replace the money. The right thing to do. And that dark valley was caused by their own sin. And we had to walk, and they had to walk through it. We sometimes have to walk through the valleys caused by what we have done wrong. Another type of dark valley is when you have the sheep going along the path and uh, maybe it narrows a little bit and they get crunched together and they trip over something. One of them will trip over something and maybe get knocked sideways by another sheep and tumble down into the ravine into the darkness. Well, that sometimes happens to us. Sometimes our dark valleys are unintentional. We find ourselves in an accidental dark valley, not because of sin, not because we were stupid or careless. We just weren't paying attention. Or maybe it was circumstances beyond our control. Being one of God's people does not prevent us from experiencing accidents now and then. That's why we wear seatbelts. It's why we buy insurance. It's why we don't run with scissors. And it's why we keep the dynamite away from the kids. Do you know the story of Mephibosheth? Second Samuel, chapters 4 and 9. Mephibosheth. I had to practice that for about five or six minutes before I could pronounce it right the first time. Mephibosheth. I've never seen anyone who's people, any, ever seen people who have named their son Mephibosheth. If you know of one, let me know. When Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, he was the prince, he was the son rather of Prince Jonathan, who was one of David's most loyal, beloved friends. And when Mephibosheth was just five, one day the nurse grabbed him in a panic and began to run. And either he fell out of her hands or she dropped him, and it badly damaged both feet. His feet were permanently maimed. Now imagine, especially if your grandparents are parents, imagine a five year old suddenly unable to run around, suddenly maybe even unable to walk, perhaps completely disabled. That's a really dark valley for an energetic kid. And it was not his fault. It was an accident caused by the nurse. But God was faithful to him in the long run. Uh, I'm going to read to you 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. It says this. This is later, of course. King David asked, is there anyone left alive from Saul's household to whom I can show gracious love in memory of Jonathan, who, remember, was his very good friend? A household servant of the late King Saul, whose name was Ziba, was called to appear before David. And the king asked Ziba, isn't there still someone left from Saul's household that I can show God's gracious love? Ziba said, well, there's Jonathan's son, he has maimed feet. So King David sent for him. Now Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, grandson of Saul, approached David. He threw himself on his face out of respect. Mephibosheth, David said as he greeted him, and hello, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, the king reassured him, because I'm going to show gracious love to you in memory of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always have a place at my table. Mephibosheth bowed low again and asked, Who am I, your servant, that you would pay attention to a dead dog like me? 
At this, the king again called for Saul's servant Ziba and said, I'm restoring to the, your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your servants will farm the land on his behalf. You'll bring in the crops in order to, pr to provide for your master's grandson. Meanwhile, he will always have a place at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. How cool is that? He continued to live in Jerusalem, always eating at the king's table since he was maimed in both feet. That's a great story. And we can tell it was several years of being in a dark valley for Mephibosheth between the time of this awful injury when he's five years of age and the event of being brought to King David's palace. How do we know it was years? Well, just imagine some five-year-old kid going in, throwing himself at the feet of the king and saying, hello, I am your servant. Or calling himself a dead dog. I don't know of any five-year-old that would do that. No, this was years later. Mephibosheth had struggled with great difficulty through that accidental valley of deep darkness, and God walked with him through it and ultimately brought him into the sunlight of the king's house. King David, loyal friend of Jonathan, Mephibosheth's dad. He enjoyed living as a king's kid for the rest of his life. There's another type of dark valley, too, though I'm not sure this one would apply to sheep. We human beings like to explore. We like to find new things to do. We like to take risks. Usually they are thoughtful risks, like Donna Cooper and the two women with her who got lost in Death Valley. And at times we end up blundering into a dark valley a dangerous situation that we did not anticipate. It's not sin, just taking risks. But sometimes those risks carry us beyond what we anticipated. So I have to be careful and I have to be thoughtful when I find myself in a valley of darkness of some kind. I need to ask the question, is this because God has actually directed me into this? Could be. Or is it my own fault because of sin? Could be. Could it be accidental? Possible. Is it circumstantial? Maybe. The promise of this psalm, Psalm 23, is that whatever the cause is, we can depend on God to be with us and in us through it all. And that's a firm guarantee. Now, the question. Why would a good shepherd ever direct his sheep into a valley of deep darkness on purpose? After all, verse 3 of Psalm 23 says, He leads me in pathways that are righteous for his name's sake. And then it says, even when I walk into a valley of deep darkness. Well, the answer is pretty simple. The shepherd knows the best path for his sheep. The shepherd knows the valley. The shepherd knows that sometimes the very best path leads through the dark valley. The shepherd knows how long and how extensive the valley is. The shepherd knows the sunlight and the good grazing land on the other side of that valley, and he knows how long it will take to get through it. The shepherd knows. But the sheep don't. One sheep rancher here in the U.S., once commented that sheep have no concept of death, but they are afraid of the dark. And often sheep will resist being herded into 
a dark spot. And it makes sense. But the shepherd knows what the sheep don't know. And that's the Lord, our shepherd, with us, his sheep, all the way through the dark valleys where he knows even when we don't. So it's true. Some valleys of darkness are actually set up by God himself. The Bible tells us when Jesus was on earth, he uh, had these followers with him that followed him around all over Galilee and Samaria and Judea and various other parts. He was teaching them godliness. He was showing them miracles, doing amazing things that were supernatural. He was preparing them to become world changers. They recognized he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He also warned them that he was going to die, but they wouldn't hear it. They didn't want to hear that at all because they believed, they were convinced, they were sure that he was ready to establish the earthly kingdom of God there and then. But on one horrific day, it happened. Jesus was killed on a death penalty cross, even though he had never sinned. And his followers were absolutely devastated. Nothing is written in the Bible about what the disciples felt or experienced on Saturday. That dark day after Jesus was killed, before he was raised from the dead. A brief valley of darkness, but massively deep for them. Can you imagine what they thought and what they felt that day? An entire day and a half from the crucifixion of Christ in the afternoon all the way through that next day and then into finding out that he had been raised from the dead on Sunday. Devastating. Utterly stunning. And Jesus had led them straight into it. And then he led them through it. And when Christ came back from the dead, the celebration and the changing of the world from that point on, that's why we're here, was just absolutely phenomenal. So that's a brief valley of darkness. But not all God-directed roads of righteousness lead into brief valleys of darkness. I'm ordained in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is a denomination that has been sending missionaries around the world for 130 years. I served as a missionary teacher myself down in Quito, Ecuador, 22 years teaching at the Alliance Academy International School. So much fun. I was teaching high, schools, uh, high school students, uh, mentoring high school students. Uh, my experiences there were really fulfilling. I loved it. I just had a great time. I've been in youth ministry for almost 50 years, and it was just so much fun. But some missionaries and ministers have been sent to places where they have worked and they have labored and they have suffered for decades with very few results or maybe even none that they can actually see. And there are a lot of stories about this. Some were and are persecuted. Some of these have even been killed. We call those martyrs. Talk about valleys of deep darkness. And that raises the question in many people's minds. What about these martyred missionaries? They died in their valleys of darkness. And what about Christians who get leukemia and never recover or have brain cancer and die of it? They don't survive their valleys either. What about those who are paralyzed for life, like Johnny Erickson Tada, if you know who she is, or Mephibosheth, whose feet were ruined, 
permanently. Some of you who are my age will remember in the news back in the 1970s, a flash flood at Toccoa Falls College, a Christian college in Georgia, killed 37 students and faculty members in just a few minutes. Big flood through the campus because a dam broke. The post-traumatic stress on the survivors was horrific. Their valleys of darkness seemed endless. But here's the thing. These people all knew that their good shepherd had directed them to those places to be there in the will of God. And he would walk with them and through them, through those dark valleys. Some of those people are absolutely fearless. Many such inspiring stories. And here's the punchline. Getting through the valley doesn't always happen in this life. Instead, the other end of the valley is heaven itself. There, the light of God makes our valleys of darkness fade into history, no matter what they were. There, we are permanently delivered from the darkness. So whether we find the end of our dark valleys in this life, which happens often, or we have to wait for eternal life, which will happen to all of us as Christians, there is an end. There is light. We will make it through. But what about fear? The next line in the verse is, I will not be afraid because you are with me. That's referring to God. You, God, are with me. I can't break that phrase into two parts because to say I will not be afraid all by itself makes no sense. The chief reason we react in fear to dark valleys is we forget the second part of the phrase. You, God, are with me. I will not be afraid because you are with me. How easy is it for you personally to forget that God is with you, around you, beside you, above you, and most, per most importantly, in you, in all of your dark valleys? How easy is it for you to forget that? In your self-talk, do you emphasize that truth repeatedly and consistently and constantly to yourself, no matter what it is you're facing, or do you accept the lie of Satan that you're stumbling in the dark alone? Truth, if you are a follower of Jesus, the good shepherd, then his Holy Spirit is in you always. Lie, God leaves you alone in your valley of darkness to stumble around by yourself. So which do you live by? The truth or the lie? It's your choice. The truth will free you from fear. The lie just might lead you to be paralyzed. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in your darkest valley when you can't see and you're freaking out for some reason, the Spirit of God is still there with you, in you, guaranteed. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, Indeed, the Lord is the one who will keep on walking in front of you. He will be with you. He will not abandon you or leave you. So never be afraid and never be dismayed. Easy to read that, easy to say that, easy to affirm that, difficult to live that. Joshua 1.9 says, be strong and courageous. Don't be fearful or discouraged because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Jesus himself, Matthew 28.20, Jesus said, remember, I am with you each and every day until the end of the age. Now, 
If you are not a follower of Jesus yet and you are exploring what it means to follow him, I'm glad you came today. You face dark valleys at times too, right? And if you don't know Jesus, you have to blunder through your dark valleys all by yourself in the spiritual sense. There'll be a lot of fear in that darkness. We have a sin problem in the world. Just take a look at daily life. We see sin and corruption and pain is everywhere. My pastor up in Reading often refers to our world as a morally broken pain machine. And that includes some valleys of serious darkness. Well, the Bible says Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He came to earth from heaven to live a human life, God as genuine man, to establish a perfect spiritual kingdom, what we call the family of God because God is our Father, our Heavenly Father. He loves us more than we can know. And by living a perfectly sinless life on this earth, Jesus gave us a series of excellent examples as to how to please our loving Father. But more than that, by actually dying on that death penalty cross, what is called the crucifixion, Jesus took on himself all of the sins of humanity, past, present, future, all of them for all of us, and paid the penalty for them as a blood sacrifice. Complete forgiveness for your own personal sins is yours free. I think I sound kind of like one of those sales guys on TV. It's yours free. Only in this case, you don't have to send in 1999 plus shipping and handling. It's free. If you will personally decide to leave your self-centered life and follow Jesus along with the rest of us. The Bible word for that is repent. It simply means to turn away from sinfulness and self-centeredness and turn toward God and follow Jesus, his son. Forgiveness from God, free. Becoming part of his family, free. The result of Jesus Christ's death, for he paid it. But dying wasn't enough. Jesus did not stay dead. If he had, it would have been worthless. The Bible says Jesus was raised to new life by God the Father. By doing that, he conquered death, therefore gave us the promise of life with him forever after we die here. In the meantime, as we live here, the spirit of Jesus Christ actually comes to live in our spirits as individual Christians. That's why Psalm 23, 4 promises that in every dark valley, God is walking right with us, in us actually by his spirit, which means we don't need to be afraid of the dark. Are you following Jesus? Are you a believer in Christ? If not, and you would like to be, the invitation from the Lord is wide open, wide open. All you have to do is ask. Ask him direct, and you can do that right now in your own mind and heart. He knows your thoughts, after all, he does. He knows what you're thinking. So think toward him. Think a prayer in his direction. Ask him to come and live in your own life. We're all going to die. You hear that every now and then. Oh, we're all going to die. We are. We live some years on this earth. Might live till 95. My mother's almost 96. Still going strong. My nephew died at 21. We don't know. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to give us a new life in heaven forever, regardless of how long we live here. 
He erases all our sins. That's great. And he gives us power by his spirit to live the life he wants us to live here on earth. So it's, it's your decision. It's your choice. Simply tell him you want in. And then get a copy of the Bible. Begin to read it and study it. I'm just a visiting speaker. I'm heading back to Reading this afternoon after we go get our lunch at Higher Grounds. Any of you guys know that place? I love that little restaurant. But I'm leaving. But there are people in this church that would love to get you started. If you want to accept the Lord today, talk to one of the people who attend here regularly and say, how can I get started in this? And they will help lead you into spiritual growth and spiritual strength as you learn to follow Jesus. And your life will have more significance than you could ever imagine. And God will live in you and walk with you through your darkest valleys. You will also have some wonderful times of spiritual sunlight too. When Donna Cooper and her daughter and friend drove into Death Valley, they knew it could be dangerous. But they thought they were well prepared. They had a full tank of gas. They had plenty of water. They had their GPS unit. All was well until it wasn't. And they got lost. And they could have died. Thankfully, a California Highway Patrol helicopter crew searched for them, found them, and rescued them. They did survive. Of course, that's what we want God to do for us. Here I am in my valley of darkness. God, I want you to swoop in with a CHP helicopter. CHP, Christ's heavenly power. And rescue me right now. We want him to make life easy for us. Get us out of here. But you know, he usually doesn't do that. Sometimes he does, but not usually. Instead, as the good shepherd, he looks for our faith and confidence in him and builds our spiritual and our emotional strength by walking with us and in us through our valleys, to, no matter how dark and difficult they are and no matter how long they last. Jesus, our good shepherd, knows what you as the Bethel Christian Church family are walking through in this, these months of transition. And he knows what you as an individual Christian are walking through in whatever painful valley of darkness may be the case right now for you. I want to finish by reading the entire psalm. So Phil, you want to put that up there? Psalm 23, 1 through 6, very short, beautiful psalm. And um, I'll add a couple of words here and there so don't get confused by what I say versus what's on the screen because I've changed it just a little bit. The Lord is the one who is shepherding me. I lack nothing I need. He causes me to lie down in pastures of green grass. He guides me beside quiet waters. He revives my life, my soul. He leads me in pathways that are righteous for the sake of his name. Even when I walk through a valley of deep darkness, I will not be afraid because you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Truly, goodness and gracious love and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house forever. Ain't that great? Ain't that great? Love this poem. 
love, love this poem, love the God behind this poem. Let's share it. Father, thank you for your word. Some of it is so poetic. Some of it is so direct. Some of it is so incredibly encouraging. Some of it warns us. Some of it uh, gives us things that we need to obey and to do. Some of it is, is just great observations about who you are and, and uh, who we are in you. But regardless, when we look at the truths that come through your word, it is just so incredibly inspiring for us, whether that we're having great times in life or whether the valley that we're in is just horrible at the moment. You are faithful and constant, and we are very, very grateful for that. Amen.